0: All right, guys, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I also work remotely for Barbell Medicine's Pain and Rehab Department. Joined by my two usual co-hosts, Dr. Michael Amato over in Boston, and Dr. Derek Miles, who is in Cincinnati now. How's it going, guys?
2: Good afternoon, Mike.
0: How's it going, Mike? Another day in the neighborhood. A rainy, dreary Thursday here in Virginia.
2: Same up in up here near Boston, but we had a couple of good like really nice days, like low seventies, sunny, very atypical in November.
0: Do you guys usually get snow right around now?
2: We had snow last week. It was crazy. Yeah, like uh, we had like three or four inches. I had to like, it took me like ten minutes to leave after after work because I had to brush all the snow off, and my coworker didn't even have anything in his car yet because it's too early in the year for it he thought it would but that was more of a freak storm we won't get more snow probably till January
1: it's 2020 man everything's out I mean a hurricane is hitting Florida (laughs) the in November
2: yeah and they're like on the Greek alphabet right yeah yeah basically
1: at this point they're just like pulling names out of a hat yeah I haven't heard about
0: this what's happening
1: it hit Tampa yesterday, and actually, like the people on the coast, from what I saw, I had a few friends get some docks washed away, and it went up through the uh, middle of the state today. Uh, Gainesville University of Florida
2: canceled classes today. Oh um, yeah, I saw that. You guys yeah. sent us the uh, the uh, that the bars are opening up for the uh, students.
1: Yes, and. and non-surprising college town fashion it's when a hurricane happens everyone floods to the bars which is a phenomenal life decision during a pandemic
2: Mm -hmm. yeah that seems right on par
1: during a hurricane as well that that works well Well, during the hurricane in all honesty like outside of the pandemic that is par for the course you basically stock up and all head to a place that is a sound structure and then whoever's house loses power you normally clean out their freezer and you have a big meal afterwards because things are going to go bad so you know the hurricane party side of things as much as dealing with a hurricane sucks like there's some fun to it um as long as nothing happens to your house (laughs) but it's just you know right now aggregating in college bars that are you know, 15 feet wide and 50 feet deep probably isn't the best thing to be pushing your capacity limits on.
0: Mm-mm. Yeah, well, I mean, it looks like we're headed for that, I don't know, is it second wave, third wave with COVID-19 now?
1: It's just a tsunami at this point.
2: It's one long swell.
0: Yeah. Well... Enough about that. Really important to talk about today. Uh we're gonna talk about rib subluxation. I imagine like all of us have heard this narrative and encountered it in clinical practice at one time or another. Um this is like the usual thing where someone says, My rib is out. Will you put it back in? Which I feel like there's gotta be a joke there. Like, I don't know why your rib's just hanging out, but dad jokes um
2: there's got to be like a cooking with adhesion i mean this is this is derek's time to shine with cooking for it with adhesions
0: as we're
1: prepping for this podcast i was already working on what rib recipe i was going to do and you know working in my baby back and spare sides to it and Mm -hmm. i really think like this is one of those instances where the analogy between cooking and the way your body works like really holds true because if you've worked with those cuts on another animal, once again, this is kind of a comparative anatomy study, you realize there's a lot of stuff holding that in place. And in order for it to completely come out, like that would be a, a pretty hard thing to do in a pretty rare event.
0: You mean it just doesn't like pop out, you know, you're just like hanging out at a party and you're just like, Hey, what's up guys? And just kind of emerges.
1: Well, you know, it's no, No.
0: (laughs) What's like your – because now I'm very curious about the topic of barbecue and ribs since we have segued into that. Uh, What's like – so I'm assuming you use a rub or what's your go-to for prepping ribs? Oh,
1: yes. Uh, It's just I can't give away my proprietary rub, but it essentially is just uh, salt, pepper, paprika. And then the key ingredient that I found that I like adding a little bit of is – um, a Jamaican curry powder from Badia. And I understand that curry powder it is the equivalent of saying barbecue sauce and that it tells you nothing about it, which is why I gave the type and brand associated with what I use.
0: I think it's really the unicorn toothpicks you usually use that does the trick though, right? Like that's really where the magic happens.
1: You know, I I did not have toothpicks one time as I made a pork shoulder and it certainly turned out on the tougher side. So, you know, you got to bust all that meat up before you stick it in the smoker for 12 hours.
0: Instead of manual therapy certs, I think you should do like barbecue certifications or cooking with adhesions certifications.
1: Well, I think once again, if you've handled food prep a lot... A lot of the discussions we have about manual therapy, changing tissue structure, take on a different perspective, because if you've broken down a deer or, you know, half a hog or whatever, you realize that is really hard tissue to get through. And when you see these pictures, like we see all the time of the fascia being this really almost like lace. Yes, that does exist, but that's after you've pulled apart so many other layers and To think that we can really change any of this with our hands, especially like once you've used a cleaver and, you know, carved out whatever you're going to do, it's just, I, I think we teach in the rehabilitation sciences world anatomy a little bit backwards because we start out by learning anatomy and we get force fed all this didactic work. And then later we learn that we can manipulate this tissue with our hands. Whereas if someone said, well, you can manipulate an SI joint with your hands and then you're going in and digging down two inches in order to get to ligaments, you realize like there's no way you're palpating that. And it's not really moving
0: either. What I really hear here is advocacy for a collegiate level cooking with the course. The Listen, man, familiar. if
1: they let me put a smoker in a, uh, out back of a gym, uh, I'll happily do this over and over again. I, th- I think, uh, to your point, PT schools are in general, really missing adequate exercise space in order to learn. And they're probably missing some, uh, good culinary skills as well to learn what does and does not happen with, uh, certain manual therapies.
0: I think it would take people a lot farther if you know how to cook and you can like break down some meat. I think that's more of a utility than like how to use magic hands on somebody's body, but, uh, yeah.
1: Well, you you know, that's an interesting point you make just in general for a lot of this, because where we get a lot of our understanding in, you know, I'm sure I know the two of you as well have had discussions with engineers before comes from analogies in our background and, We've had those discussions where occasionally you have to really explain it in the minutia of science to an individual and then be like, well, this is multifactorial because the way they've been taught is, you know, very structured. And one of the hardest things for me moving from a degree in biochemistry and having worked in a genetics lab to going and working with humans was when we first started doing statistics and I can set up an experiment in my genetics lab to where if my R squared is... 0.98 I'm going to get yelled at whereas if we look in the best human study if you're getting 0.4 that's a pretty big correlation for us and like basically that means like how much I can fit my data to the best line and when we're talking about especially the human experience it's just way more dirty than can I fix whatever I think I'm trying to fix
0: yeah yeah Jordan sent me something the other day that had an R of like 0.98 or 0.99 and the first thing I said having read that abstract was like yeah that seems suspect because it's just not something you would expect to see in you know human research typically speaking in this regard so if you're not familiar with this conversation let me give some context here because at this point we're like 10 minutes in and you may be wondering like what are these guys talking about So within the kind of uh, rehabilitative space, so like chiropractors, physical therapists, manual therapists, um, athletic trainers, there is a narrative that goes around that of your 12 ribs that you have within your body that's within your thoracic cavity, housing organs and protecting organs and helping with inspiration and expiration, that they can minutely misalign and quote unquote pop out of place. And then that somehow necessitates someone to put them back into place the kind of like just very, very brief anatomy is you have ribs that articulate posteriorly with the vertebral column, and then they wrap around and articulate some of them with the sternum, and then others directly onto each other through coastal cartilage. And then you have, you know, two kind of faux ribs or floating ribs, as they're called. And people argue that they can misalign. A lot of this comes out of this idea of trying to give a tangible explanation to quote-unquote explain pain that then validates an intervention which is what Derek and I have been hinting at this whole time is putting hands on you and putting your rib back in place. So this is a really common narrative unfortunately that doesn't have a lot of supportive evidence as you will see as we go through this conversation today. Do you guys have anything to add to that? No
2: it seems pretty uh Pretty in line with what I've heard in the past. And it's it's been a while since I've come across, actually, uh, any patient or client cases with this complaint. But I do remember from athletic training school dealing with some different sports that would say this more often than not.
1: This really does seem to be something that was more popular about 10 to 15 years ago. I haven't heard it as much recently. I'm sure it still exists. And part of this even gets into like the regionality of what things get called in the United States of the world. And you probably have some pockets of clinicians that took a certain certification that still really adhere to this, even though there is no evidence to support. or not a lot of evidence to support except for very special cases, instances where this would occur.
0: Yeah. And so like usual presentation is like, it's usually activity related. Like someone goes and either did something and then has this experience or after the fact has this experience, it's oftentimes non-trauma related. So just to be, you know, crystal clear, we're not talking like uh, a boxer got punched in the rib cage and we're worried about fracture or you had a motor vehicle accident or impact trauma. This isn't, these aren't trauma situations typically where we're worried about rolling out uh, fracture These are typically non-traumatic activity-related experiences in which someone did an activity and started having symptoms on either the anterior, the front side of the body, where the ribs meet up with the sternum or even can be lower where they don't, or in the kind of thoracic spine region close to the vertebral body, so complain of symptoms there. And uh, usually once that presents, the clinician is looking for reasons like why would this be happening? And so this is where kind of a differential gets inserted into the conversation of like, oh, your rib head is out. I need to put that back in. And then oftentimes people you know, go through that process and feel better afterwards. For context, we're saying that this narrative isn't well supported. And in fact, if you go to PubMed or Google Scholar and you look this up, you're not going to find results for rib subluxation. Some of the things you may find uh, discussions on are going to be like slipping rib syndrome which seems to happen in a very, very small minority of cases. And it's uh, presenting on the front side of the person with symptoms, typically in the lower ribs, like eight through 12, and is very pinpoint tenderness to the rib area. And there's even a maneuver called the hook maneuver where we can pull up on the ribs anterior and superior and kind of have movement in the rib. And so that may intensify symptoms don't really need to get caught up on this because the kind of recommendations and interventions for helping this person through this process is adjusting activity that's provocative as needed and time heals all wounds. So it's not something where someone's coming in and this is something that gets diagnosed or quote unquote treated on a regular basis. The other one would be something like costochondritis or TT syndrome. Mm -hmm. I think I'm saying TT correctly. It's been a while since I've even like seen that phrase, probably Mm -hmm. since my doctorate. Um, But costochondritis would just be typically overuse, overactivity, is a a correlation to this experience. Also on the front side, right where the ribs articulate with the sternum typically, and then the person will have movement provocation of symptoms, Same management, it's okay, adjust activity as needed. The only difference from costochondritis to TC syndrome that I'm aware of and could find is that that scenario actually can see visible swelling and edema, to rib articulation with the sternum, whereas costochondritis, there isn't any visible quote-unquote inflammation. Um, that's everything I could find. Like when I approached this conversation, uh, when we talked to Jordan about doing this, just because it's come up several times, I was like, well, let me see, what could we use to explain the situation? And really, those are the top three things. Was there anything else that you guys kind of came across to explain this experience?
1: Well, I think it bears repeating what you were talking about a moment ago, even with the hooking maneuver, that it's a provocation test. And what we know about a lot of provocative tests, if you follow bar medicine at all, is pain's a complex experience, and we need to test that for people that are not experiencing symptoms. And the papers that I saw on this were... All basically case control studies, looking at people who already had rib pain. So it's likely not one of the best ways of gaining a measure of what's going on. And before we can say something is quote unquote bad, we need to know once again, what the base rate is in the normal population, what the normative value is on it. And. Everything we already know from palpation just across the human body is that we're not really good at finding structures. And there are studies showing that even in the lumbar spine, you can accurately get to within one vertebral level. And I think uh, some papers will even say within a centimeter. So when we're talking about a, a quote unquote subluxation of less than a centimeter, the odds of you ever palpating that are minuscule and it ends up being a lot of assigning a problem without having the evidence to really support said problem. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. I think this kind of gets into like other analogies of other areas of your body where like, obviously the, or a rib could have sensory input that's influencing the overall pain but that doesn't necessitate that it's like needs to be moved manually or through some other technique. Um, And then for me, I just like, if I was, if that was my hunch, I don't know if I would treat it much differently than thoracic pain and kind of relating it to the patient's like functional limitations and activities. So, which is pretty vague, but, and kind of in line with most of our, take on pain and injury but just because a rib looks like it could move doesn't mean like you could move it with your hands
0: yeah and i i agree with both you derek uh both of you derek and amato and i think it's a great point too about the provocation test like just to hammer that point home it's like oh you already have symptoms in this area let me go see if i can intensify that so we do this thing that may or may not intensify it so it's not something that i would like hang my hat on and the good news is, is like, even with those three um, related DDXs, like, it doesn't alter management recommendations, which tends to fall into our usual discussion of like, basically, in a position of ruling things out. Well, it's not this, this, or this, which is a good position to be in. So here's how we, you know, cope with this situation, move forward, and not unnecessarily worry ourselves about a quote unquote underlying cause that needs to be fixed with a specific intervention, which wouldn't even be in this regard. Um, manipulation. So um, just for further context, when you hear the word subluxation, luxation would mean a full dislocation of a joint. And then a subluxation would mean partial, oftentimes with the ability to move back into its quote unquote normative position. Usually when you hear the word subluxation, you will have a better discussion in the shoulder realm as far as like persistent shoulder subluxations where the humeral head pops out of the glenoid cavity and then right back in and it's not a full dislocation, which would have to be relocated. Um, You may see other discussions of that with like the radial head where I've actually seen published that on that, with that happening, or we wouldn't have this discussion would be the common narrative that we hear in the MT world manual therapy, which would be like small minute bony movements in which we claim to be able to detect, which we can't based on exactly what Derek was talking about earlier. And we've written on this numerous times and talked about it publicly previously. Um, You can't actually, you know, detect that at any measurable or meaningful level. And then with that in mind, like it's very easy to entertain yourself and think you found what you're looking for, which isn't the case. And so that kind of automatically erodes like, A, this doesn't really happen. Typically speaking, in most contexts, it's not something, uh, especially not in this context, we don't have data to say that rib heads can subluxate out of position or that ribs can subluxate out of position and then need to be put back into place. And then the data we have on like maybe what's related to the situation or the things that we've already listed, but it doesn't then warrant, you know, let me try to manipulate your bones back into place. So this whole discussion is quite fallacious, but I think it's out of a desire to like explain what's happening, which then leads to, well, let me just come up with, since this is my explanation, let me do this intervention to quote unquote fix you. My biggest complaint with that, and I'm curious for you guys' thoughts is, It then conditions the individual to think, well, my ribs back out. Let me go see Dr. So-and-so's. They can put it back in place. And it's kind of this continuous cycle of my ribs out, get it back in place, pay someone to do that. When really management doesn't necessitate any of that. What are your guys' thoughts about that?
2: Yeah. And like it it may even spill over to like if, if ribs can pop out, like what else can pop out, and what else? What else needs that kind of uh, focused, directed treatment in that way towards that joint of body part? Because I've seen that, I've seen that in a in a, posi- in a different positive light with like other patients, like who've had who've come to me for like low back pain, and then maybe they come later on for like knee or shoulder pain, and they're like, I think I kind of get it based on what we've done in the past, but because it's a different joint, I'm a little confused on how to proceed. So if you flip that onto like, oh, remember when my rib was out of place and you popped it back in, like the same thing's now happening with like my navicular bone. You know, yeah. like I, I I just see that like stacking on top of their overall experience of like I now have this pain and injury. What needs to be done to get me to move forward?
1: We used to have these conference meetings when I was in my residency, and it was myself. Uh, My physical therapy mentor, uh, PM&R attending, PM&R residents, an orthopedic surgeon and the orthopedic surgeon or surgery residents. And we would do case studies. And the game was always, how does this affect our treatment? And we would go through presentations and no matter what or not, or often it would be like, well, they just need to go to physical therapy and undergo some graded exposure. And when we kind of scale that back to even situations like this, the real question is what finding would change the intervention? And there are those instances where, especially after trauma, you do need to rule out rib issues. Um, But in the same regard, if this is a non-traumatic instance, we don't have any good evidence for any type of manual therapy changing any tissue structure and that's just carte blanche across the whole body and to think that we have that power it it paints us as being feeble is the only word i could really think to think that it would take some light touch when you think about it in the grand scale of things like if that really were the case you know catching a right hook to the ribs should give you some rib dysfunction every time but we've started, or I guess we haven't started. It's always been this way. We like looking for these one-to-one correlation answers for what's going on. And a lot of times, you know, we discuss it is multifactorial, but you get these schools of thought that wants to blame one thing. and the whole rib being out was kind of a panacea for thoracic pain for a long time. And then we realized there's more to it. And then you've seen other camps now come out and say, well, your ribs just aren't moving right. And one, what the hell does that mean? Two, how are you measuring that and how accurate is it in its measurement? And and, until you can support that there is this normative value for quote unquote rib movement and, and, people outside of that normative value are experiencing pain at a much increased frequency, then I'm not personally willing to say that that is the cause. And even if we're going to say to go as far down the rabbit hole and say subluxation quote unquote exists in your ribs, then you need to show me there's a higher prevalence of it in the symptomatic population than the asymptomatic population. So we're like six steps of evidence away from the claim, but we've not only put the cart in front of the horse, we've like left the horse in the barn.
0: Yeah, we've, we talk about this you know, pretty regularly as well, like how we've just jumped so many steps ahead of even validating our premise of like, oh, this exists and this is, uh, you know, has a meaningful risk for being present so that we must intervene in order to get the outcomes we're looking for. And we're already like 10 steps past that before we even validated our premise here. And so, you know, that's a major problem within not just the you know, rehabilitative field, but we see this throughout healthcare, unfortunately. Um, going back to something Amado said uh, that kind of, you know, struck me about seeing, and Derek used have this as well, about seeing yourself as is is that metaphor of like, oh, that's what's going on with my body. My ribs are just popping out or a rib is just popping out. And I need to be careful or I can envision that happening. And suddenly people start talking about, like, I can feel it. I can feel my rib. It came out. Can you put it back in? And then thinking that because of that, they're easily, you know, fragile or malleable. Um, And so this whole idea, it just, I think nowadays where I'm at is I start thinking about, like, how do they pick up on my explanation? And then how do they adapt that to their understanding of their own body? And I feel like this narrative really sets people up for 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 some not so great like personal narratives.
1: You know, at this point I'm not even as concerned that the because I'm sure there are people you could say that to, that it's just, you know, water off a frog's back. And I still just don't want to tell someone something that's completely unsubstantiated. I, I I just don't care about the downstream effects as much as just having some responsibility in what I'm saying to actually be able to back it up beyond just, I learned this in a weekend course
0: or in your doctorate program.
1: Yeah. And I think we've increasingly seen with this, with especially as the quote unquote pain neuroscience education stuff. And I could feel both of the hair on the back of your neck rise there. um, We've seen that a lot of people don't listen to what's being said and it doesn't change beliefs as much anyway and so you've seen the camp of like well is it really that harmful and i get their case but like if it's not true should we be saying it (laughs) and I, i think that to me is is the bigger issue at large
2: yeah and the fear thing like strikes me too because like i had i had someone come in the other day with a a calf a calf strain after they were running and they were really fearful of like loading the leg getting back into walking let alone running and when she was like well the doctor explained I did it because I wasn't stretching enough and so I just said like no and um like we 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 talked about why maybe there were some other factors but it was one of those things where at the end of the evaluation she still had some you know fear and some hesitancy about moving forward because you know the way we mapped it out was like we're gonna have to do a lot of strength training and it might just take some time for you to get back to that level of running but she was at least reassured that like it wasn't as silly as like i need to stretch all the time and so it was like shifting it a little bit like still some fear but at least like we know what the false thing was and maybe what the more true thing is and that that matters like just trying to align with what you're saying there like that matters a lot to me because like at least we know what we need to do that's more correct and we can address the fear and hesitancy just through the exposures over time which just makes more sense to me than yeah you should have been stretching 24 7
1: so let's flip the question on its head a little bit because I have a feeling a lot of people listening to this are, are more looking for advice if this does happen. So how do we manage this? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think it does start with having a better understanding of what your experience means, which goes back to like giving you the narrative of your rib head as slipped out of place and just getting you an understanding of like sometimes these things happen and we all have these experiences that we label as painful. Yours just happens to be in this region. And the good news is it's not anything concerning like a trauma case in which we're worried about rib fracture. Even then it would be a conversation of like the severity of rib fracture and displacement and so on and so forth. But you're in a good position because we don't have anything currently ongoing that we need to be concerned with. Let's figure out how we keep you active. We try to minimize hyper-focusing on symptoms and move forward from here. Obviously, that's very easy to say. We're dealing with human beings, and that's a very different conversation based on the human in front of you. But it's going to start with having a better understanding of what you're experiencing. We're, we're trying to windle, dwindle away these kind of false narratives that we talked about today.
1: Well, in the lifting community, especially, which I'm going to assume is the majority of our audience, I think... Part of it, if we're going to talk about addressing it, is doing things different than what is currently in their programming. Mm -hmm. I, I increasingly think that specificity is sometimes the enemy of progress to where we get so determined to do the same things over and over and over again that it does limit our overall progression and occasionally does expose us to a little bit of increased risk of injury. You know, we've talked about before, if you want to tell me what, or if you're going to ask me what's going to get hurt, tell me what sport you play. And there is some of that just exposure out of it. And I know we've beaten this dead horse, but there is more to life than squat bench and deadlift. And it is okay to put in some exercises that do involve some rotation. It's not mobility work. It's different exercises. And going even back to where we began with the analogy side of things, like it is those analogies, if you will, that really help build a better foundation of athleticism. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be, you know, we, we had someone a while back say, Turkish get-ups don't add anything to my squat, so I'm never going to do them. Okay. I, I would agree that a Turkish get-up is not likely to add very many pounds to your squat. However, doing a Turkish get-up, one could make the case, is at least exposing you to some different movements and likely building a broader base of athleticism. It, it's almost the exact same sports specialization talk that we just browbeat with the youth athlete side of things to where it's like, hey, go do something different. It doesn't matter what the different is. It's There's nothing amazingly inherently special about this one different thing, but don't do the same thing all the time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is where like you could then... Like lean back on the anatomy and go through how, yeah, I mean, the thoracic spine, most of its motion is rotation and flexion. So if you don't train rotation and flexion a lot, like you said, it's not like mobility work. You could just do like unilateral rows, chops, like med ball scoop tosses, things like that, that just train different patterns of movement that maybe that exposure is what you need to kind of like progress and move forward out of that, uh, that pain or injury when i think the
1: vernacular that barbell medicine adopted of general physical preparation is great because it really is go do different things like Mm -hmm. earlier this morning i unloaded probably 300 cinder blocks trying to build a little wall out back and it you know it's different movements than what I have typically been doing in my training recently. And I certainly felt some muscles burn that I haven't in a few weeks. It wasn't anything bad. I just unloaded a truckload of bricks to build a little wall. So much rotation though, guys, so much rotation.
0: <laughs> I haven't heard you guys say that I need to be on my back in like a ninety ninety. 90- 90, position, squeezing a foam roller and blowing up a balloon. Did you guys receive that out or?
1: I I was wondering if this was going to come up today and going back to schools of thought, out kicking their coverage. So my requisite for giving an individual an exercise, I don't know that I've ever said this on a podcast is how easy is it to teach? How easy is it to scale and how stupid does the person look doing it? And I do everything in my power to not violate principle three. And when we're starting to talk about people in positions that would make an OB turn their head, blowing up a balloon that would make a circus performer turn their head, you're like, well, what are we really trying to accomplish here? And and I get that I just said you should be doing a variety of tasks, but I also – I mean we've all – Been there. Like, I I guarantee you, every rehab professional listening to this podcast has been in the gym working out and has seen someone doing something and, like, kind of shook their head and, like, they picked that up from a PT. Mm -hmm. And to sit here and say, like, you're not apically doming your diaphragm, come on. Really? Like that? That's the best we can really throw. Like, guy with a forty-two inch vertical, you know, doing crazy one-of-a-kind athletic feats. No, nah, dude, you you you're not apically doming. Correct. No, get the hell out of here.
0: But what if you reset my diaphragm for me?
1: It's once again, like, what does that even mean? Like, and it's <laughs> like old, old man in the cloud. What <laughs> it's what are we resetting like what was the base setting what's the new setting how are you measuring that how precise is it how good are you at determining any difference in said measurement like there's just so much bs and you know that whole group kind of branched off of the you need to be able to crawl a certain way like no (laughs) it's it's telling people they're like telling even mediocre intermediate level athletes they're not breathing right and they're not rolling right is asinine like it, it is absolutely horrendous that a clinician would say that to someone firmly believe it and then take that athlete tell them that they can't train in the means they want to and have them rolling around on the ground blowing up balloons
0: but i got this cert man and it says like I'm the best at teaching people how to crawl on the floor.
1: I mean, well, I, there's a Guinness Book of World Record for everything now. And if that's if you want to be the quote-unquote best, I really hope you're the only one because nobody else needs to be listening to you. I mean,
2: everyone should be wearing a mask anyway at the gym, so it doesn't seem like you can blow up balloons right
0: now. It's true. That's a good point. No. <laughs> yeah you know i so i have a toddler now and anytime i see lucy like be like all right i'm gonna get up and walk uh, and you can see it on her face she, you're like yeah she's motivated there's something out there in the environment she wants and then she like comes crashing down i i just think like if this were a thing and it existed like my daughter has so many subluxated ribs right now watching her just like tumble over every single time she tries to get up and walk. If we were legitimately this fragile, I have no idea how we have survived for as long as we have as a species.
1: Well, even on top of that, like if you look at the cohort where you would think you would see this at a high prevalence, I would argue it would probably be sweep rowers. Like you're talking about an athlete that turns as far as they can in one direction thousands of times over the course of a training session. Like, I haven't been in a boat in 14 years now, and I can still rotate way further to my left than my right. Mm -hmm. And, yes, well, it's because I haven't been blowing up my balloons. Um, (laughs) Man, you know what? Next cooking with adhesions, I'm going to do the whole thing with a balloon in my mouth. Um, I got this now. Um, But... Once again, like if you look at that cohort, you don't see this high prevalence of quote unquote rib subluxation out of it. And if, if I were going to be the one that tried to prove it exists, that would probably be the population where I would start.
2: Yeah. That's the population I thought of when I was thinking back to like athletic training school, they would, we got complaints of like thoracic pain, but Mm -hmm. I was never, it was never something I would diagnose as like a rib subluxation.
0: Well, what's interesting is like, even the so the slim data that we have on this discussion of like, okay, I need to, you know, formulate a differential diagnosis list, it's all anterior. We, we there, so you would have to get into specifically looking into thoracic spine symptoms to even like look at a DDX for posterior quote unquote rib pain. Like that just doesn't, there's nothing there. Like if you go looking for this and it's funny because that's usually how Like typical cases, as far as they present, that's how they present is posterior thoracic spine pain, either just lateral to the spine where ribs articulate, but you're not going to find anything. It's going to be talking about spinal related symptoms. Whereas the things that we actually have to talk about the ribs are mostly on the anterior side, which is interesting. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, and I'll say this, uh, I think something you do see occasionally in the lifting community is an intercostal strain which certainly can give you anterior rib pain and i'll say i have done it and i i felt a pop and you know the problem when you're starting to talk about an injury like that is we know the natural history of strains and just like if you pulled your hamstring like it hurts like hell for the first few days in a lot of instances but it still gets into the how am I going to do my graded exposure and start exposing people to different motions out of it. And, you know, in instances where it's rib pain, we're going to do a good bit of rotation work. And it's not that there's anything, once again, like inherently special about it, but I want to build the biggest, broadest foundation that I can for things to heal off of and be exposed to. Like if we're doing graded exposure and we're still only exposing to like the same thing over and over and over and over again, like, cool, we've created some resiliency there, but have we really done the best possible job we could in creating that broad-based athleticism resilience?
0: Yeah. So I think like before we get into the Q&A, a a good summary takeaway so far is, a, we don't, we don't agree with this explanation. We wouldn't advocate for it. And a lot of that tends towards because treatment and recommendation doesn't need to be, nor should it be, some type of manual therapy intervention. It's going to be, how do you titrate activity to tolerance? If you want to toss in some rotational stuff, that's cool. And then move forward and deal with any you know setbacks or flare-ups that may occur along the way and just respect the process. Uh, a, a good way to look at this would be The similar scenarios were placed in with a lot of body region silos like low back pain discussion is we really can't put our finger on something specific, which is a good position to be in. And we need to move ourselves forward through this experience and figure out how we can give you control over the situation, which is a great position to be in. And so I think with that understanding, uh, unless you guys have anything else to add, we can kind of move into the Q&A.
1: Let's get answering questions.
2: Yeah, let's do it. Sweet.
0: All right. So, and I think we've probably gotten through some of these. So we may, you know, not hit all of these. So we, uh, just for reference, we, anytime we do a podcast, we curate some questions from social media and oftentimes they're going to wind up in the podcast where we talk about them. So the first couple we've already answered, so we have several questions about, is this even a thing? And if so, how do you treat quote unquote it or explain it? Are rib head diagnoses BS? Um, absent of trauma, does this even, so we got a lot of those questions and I think we've you know, driven that point home. Like, although you can have symptoms in an area of your body that's either on the front side or back side related to the rib cage region, this isn't a label that I provide you. We don't recommend it and it doesn't influence management or recommendations specifically. Um, which leads us into what makes it hurt so bad if the rib isn't actually out of place? Is it just a muscle spasm Why is it so painful to breathe?
1: Well, in in this, I I would circle back a little bit to what I said about your differential, possibly including an intercostal strain. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, like if you have that going on, you do have movement there. (laughs) Every time you breathe, especially every time you do something that involves a strain. So you're going to constantly like poke the bear a little bit out of this and even to say like what makes it hurt so bad well that's that's a little bit of an interesting question in and of itself because you know how many instances could an individual possibly had this and not even been cognizant of it so yeah Yeah.
0: and that can also be there's a lot of layers so i mean you could a lot of people could probably have a fracture, especially if it's like a boxer, and you'd be like, yeah, it's, I barely noticed this. And you're like, yeah, okay, like you got a rib completely displaced, but it's quite individual. And
1: Mike, I want to go back to the question above it, and the, is there a way to tell if it's quote-unquote out, and do they actually come out? There were there is some evidence regarding some subluxation in individuals with connective tissue disorders. So I, I don't want to carte blanche say this is absolutely not a thing. In a small subset of individuals within that subset, there are some individuals that certainly do experience this. And there are some studies that look at the evidence of this using ultrasound and have shown that in those individuals, you can quote unquote have one come out. However, once again, we're talking about a slice of a slice of a slice of individuals there.
0: Yeah. And can you guys hear me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hear me? Testing one. Yeah. Two. Yes. We oh, can okay. hear you. Yeah. I got confused with the button on my mic. I was like, is a flash meeting. They can hear me, or anyways yeah and so um i briefly touched on that at the beginning but i think that's good to reiterate like we are not saying subluxations e- e- even outside of the rib context we are not saying that doesn't happen and that's not a thing i would argue that it's going to be context dependent where it often gets talked about in the manual therapy and rehabilitative realm as those contexts typically are not uh true to what we're talking about and so i wouldn't want to give that narrative to folks uh, Usually where this gets into questions is like chiropractic world. I wouldn't recommend that narrative as it's often supplied, but that doesn't paint it with a broad stroke and be like, this never happens. This doesn't exist. It's to what Derek said, a very small subset of the population. And then we're, we're going to consistently come back to the question of, okay, I found this something. I labeled this something. What does this mean for recommendation and management? And that's where the question really, like we should be trying to answer to the professionals. Um, I think I may have said something earlier when I had my mic muted. I was trying to recall. Oh, so the context of like individuality. I don't know if you guys heard that, but I was saying, um, cause they asked like, how could this hurt so much? Like that's a super individual. Mm-hmm. Question yeah, in we, we that. got that. Okay, good. Good, good. Um, how to educate clients who have been told this by the practitioners. Uh, I think we've pretty much kind that one pretty well. Is there anything you want to add to that one guys?
1: No, I think it really comes back to that honesty question. And mm-hmm. I I don't think you need to open up with a bazooka of, no, this isn't actually a thing. But sometimes it even starts out with like, well, why do you think this is a thing? Well, what what has led you to believe this? And then you can kind of get into some questions from there.
2: Yeah. I like the, Yeah, like the, like almost like, am I kind of open-ended questions on like, what do you think is going on? What is your understanding of it? How do you think oh, I'm going to help you with this? Because then you, if you're seeing like doubt or like at least like a uh, misunderstanding or a lack of understanding, then that could be an opening at then being like, all right, let's kind of dive into that and maybe explain it in a
0: better way. I think those are like must questions for our clinical listeners yeah, getting at why do you what do you think what's going on? Why do you think that and what do you think needs to be done or excellent questions? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you tell someone that kind of hits on the one, this one, I'll go ahead and finish the question, but what do you tell someone that says this, telling them the rib actually isn't out, does not help pain. We would, we would agree like simply providing that narrative probably isn't going to move the needle very far for some people. Reassurance is actually quite, uh, quite the analgesic. Like they feel better knowing like, Oh, okay. My ribs not out, Mm -hmm. but obviously for others, we may need to spend more time like working through that narrative and to stuff we've already touched on. Uh, we may need to do some, you know, uh graded exercise exposure which could be you know provocative movements or rotation like Derek and Amato were saying do you guys have anything to add to that one
2: no just like reassurance validating can go a long way it doesn't mean you need to make stuff up and agree with them um but you know actually listening to them as a person and like you know empathizing with them
0: yeah like uh you know my big thing that I've said multiple times in the past is don't invalidate the person. So I wouldn't be like
2: mm-hmm.
0: not even like visually examine the area and just be like, yeah, that's, you know, BS, whatever. Moving on, that would not be a great yeah. approach. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> um, and then this is a good one that we probably could do a whole podcast on, but it's really going to be dependent on how much you guys want to get into this. Why do these issues seem to resolve instantly with manipulation? Obviously, instantly could be a debatable You know, a signing of that word, but let's just say, why do people tend to feel better with manipulation? If they do, the baseline assumption here is they do, and they're kind of giving that as a blanket answer. I wouldn't agree to that. But if someone does respond positively to manipulation in this context, why do you think that occurs?
1: Well, if we really get down to the nuts and bolts of it, I mean, I I think... without turning this into a manual therapy podcast and at the risk of having you two come back at me a little bit, if there's one area where there, you can say there is like the small subset of evidence for manipulation, it tends to be with really acute events in general. And so in those instances, like, yeah, there, there's some low level evidence to support it um, to, as to why it resolves instantly, man, that's, Open Pandora's box. There, um, I'll quote the great uh, Joel Bialowski and be as ambiguously as po- or as ambiguous as possible. Neurophysiological effects.
2: Yeah, like it brings me back to some of those early Bialski studies, and I've pre- I presented on this as a student um, at a clinic that was very specific in the manual therapy, um, which got a lot of turn, a lot of heads to turn. But I remember seeing a study that looked at thoracic manipulation and the effect on cuticle pain, like pricking someone's cuticle of their, like, thumb and seeing a positive response after thoracic manipulation. Um, so that should tell you something that, like, th- that there's going to be some kind of effect. But I, if you can explain to me the regional interdependence of your thumb cuticle and the thoracic spine, that would be all ears.
0: I mean, I'm sure... I'm positive somebody would be willing to have that conversation with you quite confidently about it. You know, I don't want to turn this into a manual therapy discussion, mostly because I think us three have been quite forthcoming about our stance on this topic and why we believe what we believe and the reasoning that we have. You can get an effect all sorts of ways, and people can respond positively and negatively for all sorts of reasons. The umbrella phrase that I often say these days is placebo-like contextual effects, and there's a lot there just related to the therapeutic ritual, whether you trust and believe me, whether you've had positive response to this intervention previously, the list goes on and on, therapeutic touch. The bigger issue is what is the future meaning assigned to your experience and what do you think needs to be done about this experience? And ultimately, that's where we take a lot of issues at Barbell Medicine is a narrative utilized to validate and, and supply to get to the intervention aren't great narratives, aren't built on solid ground with good research evidence. Um, Oftentimes don't even make logical sense intuitively at all. And then people make money off of that intervention. And so these are kind of the layers to this discussion. Um, I think a lot of people just assume because we have built in the infrastructure of given the narrative of it's a rip head out that needs some manipulation, that that's why people oftentimes respond positively is ultimately because this repeated falsehood, if you will, and then doing something is better than nothing. And that's kind of like the long of the short of that discussion.
2: Yeah. And I think there's a cool. lot of survivorship bias with some of these things too, where like the people that it really helps, they're going to be very vocal about it. But then there's going to be a large amount of people that it doesn't help and they might just like take it or leave it and move on to something something different. <laughs> Well, not only okay. that,
1: but it doesn't need to be this big, specific, drawn-out thing. And I still remember when Joel was doing his dissertation, he opened up by saying, "Part of the reason I got into this was to figure out if there was a difference between my buddies and I doing the good old bear ha- or bear hug crack versus this specific thing." And mm-hmm. you know, if you've been around your friends at all like it's not uncommon for someone to do the like wrap their arms around you pull you up and back and pop it and Mm -hmm. turns out like that's just as effective as trying to be quote-unquote specific with whatever is going on so like you know this if it feels good knock yourself out it's not anything special and likely if Bubba has long enough arms he can do it just as effectively
0: but I paid $150,000 to figure out how to specifically do the thing that separates me from others with my specific title, Derek. Well, you should have called Geico. (laughs) Yeah, that's a a
2: whole other conversation about capitalism that we won't have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that's all I got. Um, Do you guys have anything you want to add to this podcast?
1: No, I think I've said everything I need to say. I will go get some balloons to have blown up while I make some ribs this weekend.
0: I'm looking forward to uh, the Instagram stories of smoked ribs.
2: Use yeah. those balloons to make the the chocolate cups. I've always wanted oh, to do
0: that. I wonder if I can break
1: something up to where I can like trap the smoke off the, coming out of the smoker into a balloon.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. That, you that's take pretty, it that's a good idea. and you put it in some bourbon. And you have a smoky glass of bourbon. Oh,
1: but I like my bourbon with bourbon.
0: It's also okay. Um,
1: I used the mole bitters last night. It was very good. Oh, uh, sidebar for the listeners: um, We've been trying to introduce Amato to swankier cocktails, and we've introduced him now to the left-hand cocktail, which I highly recommend looking into.
2: Yes, I'm. I'm uh, a novice like the most the the prime definition of a novice that was the fourth cocktail i've made and the previous three were the same drink but without the mole bitter so you're on the novice cocktail template yeah yeah
0: we're gonna release that uh, around the holidays all right well, hopefully this has provided some kind of educational information about this context and it's beneficial to you. Obviously, if you're ever dealing with a situation in which you're not quite sure about what's ongoing or how to get back to activity, we offer remote consultations as well as programming through the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Department. You just got to go to our website, barbellmedicine.com, click on the coaching tab. or down at the bottom, submit a questionnaire and we'll be in contact with you. Uh, until next time, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Take care.